When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Think of America like a bar, stocked with beer, soda, chips, or crisps as we call them in Britain, classic rock on the jukebox, the pool table's free. Because the bar is so great, there are way more people trying to get into it than can possibly fit. So the manager hires bouncers, ropes off the door to make it more exclusive. But does that make the bar any better for those who are inside? With 262 days to go, this is Checks and Balance. Hello, I'm John Prido, and this is a podcast from The Economist about the 2020 elections and the road to power in America. I'm The Economist's US editor, and from now until Election Day, we'll take one theme each week and explore it in depth. Today, has cutting immigration helped America's working class? Something you may have missed during the drama of impeachment and the first Democratic primaries, President Trump expanded the list of mostly Muslim nationalities he's restricted from entering the US. A hard line on immigration will be a big part of his re-election pitch. He'll make the link between stronger borders and a booming economy. This turns orthodox economics on its head. The bar isn't meant to be more fun just because it's harder to get into. Might Donald Trump's wall be working? To explore and explain all of this, as always, I'm joined by Charlotte Howard. Hello, Charlotte. Hi, John. Did you manage to make it to the dry cleaners to clear up Buttergate? <laughs> I cannot believe that that was not cut from the final edit and uh, repercussions are to come. John Fasman, how are you doing? I know you've been in Nevada. I'm very well, I think. I think I'm very well. I'm just off a red eye. I came straight from JFK to the studio. I am barely sentient, but I'm, I'm excited to talk. Okay, good. Did you find any good bars out in Nevada? I did not find any good bars out of Nevada. I was diligent. I found some great Thai and Vietnamese food, but no bars. Well, we're going to be talking about immigration and wages and politics in this episode. And John Fasman, I know you took a trip recently across the Mexico border for a story you wrote for me. I did. I drove from El Paso to San Diego along the border and was struck by just how much wall there was there and the extent to which the wall is changing those communities that live right along the border. Okay, we'll get to that in a minute, but let's kick off with some economics and specifically that link between immigration and working class wages. Callum Williams, who's a senior economics writer at The Economist, got me interested in this. He's written about the subject in this week's issue. Since 2016, wage growth in America has accelerated. And at the moment, we're looking at about 3 to 4% year-on-year changes in cash terms. But if you zoom in, say, to the bottom of the labor market, things are looking even better. So, for instance, if you look at the latest year, people in America who don't have a high school diploma, their wages have gone up by an astonishing 10% in the past year. So what economists rather meanly refer to as low-skilled Americans are doing really well. What has happened to immigration, meanwhile? Well, at almost exactly the same time, America has turned 
considerably less friendly to uh, immigrants. So if you look, for instance, at uh, net migration, that fell to about 600,000 last year, which is the lowest in, in at least a decade. And if you look at the stock of foreign-born people in the labour market, the overall number of that is falling now for the first time in quite some decades. So let's do a bit of the economic theory. I mean, most economists believe or think they've shown that actually there isn't much of a link between immigration and what happens to wages for the low-skilled native-born. And in a sense, that's a counterintuitive finding, isn't it? Because if you ask kind of non-economists, I think they'd assume that there was a link automatically. Well, I think the way to think about it is if you ask uh, an immigration economist, you know, what's the impact of immigration on wages, what they'll tend to say is not, yes, it has an impact or no, it has no impact. They'll tend to say, well, it kind of depends where you look. So one thing that people often say is you need to think about, you know, specific occupations that might be affected. One is kind of housekeeping, cleaning occupations. Another is uh, kind of maintenance staff, janitors, that kind of thing. And a third one is a subset of construction work to, to do with drywall installation. Why are those three so important? Well, they're, they're quite useful from a kind of methodological perspective because, for one thing, they have a large immigrant workforce, so a large share of all workers in America are born abroad. And their services that they produce, they're not traded internationally. They're not really sold abroad. And what that means is that the adjustment to immigration tends to be within the firm rather than, say, by producing more for export or producing less for export. So these are quite good occupations to look at. And what we found is that in these occupations, wages are actually doing pretty well. They're doing even better than the wages for other low-skilled workers, which, are, which as we say, are rising quite quickly. That's important because that would seem to fit with the arguments that are made, the economic arguments that are made by some immigration restrictionists? It would, but we have to think about the short term and the long term. So this decline in immigration is a pretty recent phenomenon. Most economists would expect that in the short term there is a bit of an effect on wages. However, if you look at all of the other examples in the past when America has enacted policies to reduce the supply of immigrant workers, it's often the case that in the short term you get a boost but then over the medium and the long term, there's actually no discernible boost to wages of native-born workers at all. And sometimes you actually see their wages go down. What's the picture in the rest of the world? I mean, is that consistent with Western Europe, other advanced countries? Around the same time as Trump won the election, the UK voted to leave the European Union. That prompted a very sharp decline in migration from the rest of the EU. Interestingly enough, around that time, or at least a few months later, wages in the UK started to rise as well. So people are kind of asking similar questions. Charlotte, you've been watching these two trends. On the one hand, falling levels of immigration, on the other, rising blue-collar wages for a little while, and like me, wondering whether there's a connection there. What do you make of Callum's analysis? I think it's very interesting analysis, and I also think that it is just too soon to make any definitive assessment of the effect of restrictionist policies on wages or on America's economy. I also think, however, that that will not remotely keep Donald Trump from using this early evidence to bolster his campaign in the months to come. Immigration is so core to who Donald Trump is and the way that he communicates with voters. Way before even he announced his presidential campaign, certainly in his presidential campaign with all the discussion around the wall. As president, some of his earliest actions were, for instance, to ban 
travel from Muslim-majority countries. This is just very, very core to who Donald Trump is. So I see on the one hand, you have uh, the interesting economic question, but on the other hand, you have the political one. And I do think in the short term that this will probably play well with Trump's base. John Fassman, Donald Trump fairly often says vicious things about immigrants. How does his record in terms of what's happened to America's immigration system match up to his rhetoric on, on this subject? Well, he has presided over, as Callum said, an absolute decline in the number of immigrants in America and a relative decline in the number of immigrants in the labor force. One of the interesting things, the sort of lesser known things about his presidency is that he has presided over a huge increase in the number of guest worker visas. And that's something that businesses, especially agricultural businesses, have wanted forever. And so these immigrants are working, but they appear not to be staying. Yes. So you might think, looking at the overall numbers, that there are many fewer immigrants coming to do low-skilled jobs coming from Central America. But in fact, if you, as you say, you look at these guest worker programs, which are visas where you go for a few months to work on a farm in California, typically picking almonds, or um, Georgia is another big destination. There's actually been a huge increase there. So you know, Donald Trump presides over large increase in migration of Mexicans is not the story that you read about, but it has happened on one level. That's right. That may actually be true, that he has presided over a large increase in the number of legal migrant Mexican workers. I do think on this question of how Trump uses data to bolster his case is sort of interesting. So in his first addressed to Congress, he cited a National Academy of Sciences report saying that immigration hurt workers. It was a way of making what had long been sort of bombastic claims feel like it was grounded in real academic work. And some of the authors of that report wrote a retort to his speech that essentially explained that that report looked at a a whole host of different sources of evidence and found generally that both the economic and fiscal consequences of immigration were positive, or at the very least, they weren't likely to be negative. And that when you looked at a period of at least a decade, there was little evidence of the negative impact of immigration on wages or the employment of native-born Americans as a whole. When there was some evidence of negative impact, the people who were most affected were people who are recent immigrants or those who are native-born with the very lowest levels of skills or education. And that piece is the one that Trump really seized on in that speech. But even there, the authors said that the evidence of the effect on uh, low-skilled native-born Americans was far from conclusive or unanimous. But I bring that up as an example, both to explain what the research actually says, and also to say it doesn't really matter what the strong, thorough, rigorous analysis shows about immigration. It's just something that plays really well in speeches. It's something that plays really well in sound bites and ads. So this is going to be something you're going to hear a lot of in the coming months. I think that's absolutely right. If Donald Trump can convince voters in November that he has got the border under control and that wages are going up, that is a convincing story to tell. Okay, thank you both. We'll come back and take a broader look at immigration from a political point of view a little bit later. Meanwhile, a reminder, if you want to read Callum's article about immigration and wages, you can by subscribing to The Economist. Head to economist.com slash pod 2020 to receive 12 issues for $12 or £12. That's considerably less than John Fasman spends on dinner when he's out on the trail. <laughs> 
So let's go a little bit deeper into how immigration affects wages. I've gone down the habitual historical rabbit hole to find out a bit more. Economists love a natural experiment. And in 1980, they got one from an unlikely source. That year, Fidel Castro briefly lifted the embargo on emigration from his communist utopia. Flotillas of small boats brought 125,000 Cubans from Mariel Harbor to a new life in the US. It turned out that some of the Marielitos had been released from prison and asylums. While that was bad news for the Carter administration, it gave Brian De Palma and Oliver Stone the beginnings of a plot for Scarface. Their 1983 film starred Al Pacino as Tony Montana, a Marielito gangster with a fondness for cocaine and machine guns. The influx was so big that the workforce in Miami rose by 8% almost overnight. Most of the new workers were low-skilled, and so the experiment began. What did all this competition do to the wages of workers in Miami? Economists have been fighting over this for years. David Card of UC Berkeley published a paper in 1990 showing, rather surprisingly, that the Marielitos had no effect on wages of the low-paid. This became the academic consensus. Immigration doesn't hurt the wages of indigenous workers. Then in 2015, George Borjas of Harvard published a new study claiming Card was wrong. He found the influx of Marielitos had harmed the wages of a subgroup of the low-skilled, high school dropouts. The academic spat coincided with the launch of an unlikely political career. When Mexico sends its people, they're not sending their best. Donald Trump used one of Borjas' papers as evidence that fortifying the southern border would be good for American workers. We are proposing an immigration plan that puts the jobs, wages and safety of American workers first. And so, the argument over Marielle has become hugely influential and made Fidel Castro an unwitting architect of Donald Trump's war. Charlotte, there's this weird focus on Marielle because of the spat between Card and Borjas, who are two big figures in this area. But there are so many other periods of American history where there have been either high levels of immigration suddenly or sudden restrictions. What can we learn from some of those? Lots of things. The first is just a general point that we speak about America as a nation of immigrants. And that's, of course, absolutely true. We're also a nation that periodically, again and again, takes dramatic action to keep immigrants out. So in 1882, you had the first really big restriction, which was the Chinese Exclusion Act in the wake of the California gold rush. And there was lots of xenophobia and fear about the yellow peril and so forth. In the 20s, you had a quota imposed on the influx of Eastern European Jews on and on, you you see this again and again. There was a concern about people coming from Mexico in the from the forties, really through the sixties. I could continue, but the point is just a general one that fear about immigration and immigrants is central to America's history. And then there's the second point to answer your question about what have we learned from prior periods of restriction. 
And you do see sometimes restrictions on immigration coinciding with big policy developments within the United States. So this was particularly notable with the New Deal and with being able to have enough political support to expand the safety net for people who were native-born Americans, not to all these new people coming into the country. It wasn't just immigrants who were excluded from the New Deal's provisions. The National Labor Relations Act effectively barred agrarian and domestic workers who were heavily African-American from the protections of that act. That sort of enabled the white social cohesion that, that allowed the New Deal to take root. It's a disturbing thesis that this extraordinary period of progressivism coincided with a decline in the rate and number of immigrants and required the exclusion of non-white workers in the South to actually succeed. I mean, it kind of goes back to our conversation last week when we were talking about Bernie and socialism and whether socialism can take off in America or not. If you look at some of the Northern European countries, and you know this is well known, but just a point worth raising again, the Northern European countries that have more explicitly and more generous socialist system, they're a much more homogenous society. And so America's inherent diversity has historically made it harder to extend a generous safety net to the broadest group of Americans. Yeah, I think it's noticeable that if you look at the foreign-born share of the U.S. population in 2016, when Donald Trump wins re-election, it's right back up to the level it was at in the early 20s. And that prompted a very draconian immigration law, which then brings down immigration steadily until it sort of reaches its bottom out in the 60s. And then you have a more open, generous immigration law passed, and, and then it steadily rises throughout the second half of the 20th century. And now it's starting to fall again. And, and as you say, this is something that Donald Trump, I think, will be crowing about a good deal as we get towards November. And bear in mind that the only way that law got passed in the 60s was because Teddy Kennedy assured everyone that it would not change the ethnic makeup of the country. I mean, that was a concern even then. That's a very good point. Okay, thank you, guys. We'll be back in a moment to figure out how this fits with Donald Trump's signature policy, the border wall. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Let's finish up by figuring out how the economic theory connects with the hard reality of President Trump's most famous policy. John Fasman, you've recently done a trip along the US border with Mexico to take a look at the wall. What did you see when you were there? I found a vibrant and very quickly changing part of America. I started this trip in El Paso, Texas, where I embedded with Border Patrol agents. Uh, the construction of the wall was well underway in some places, but there are still stretches of remote areas with no barrier at all. Along the border in New Mexico, I met Michael Quintana. He works with the state land office and knows everything there is to know about the New Mexico border. And once you pass through the El Paso suburbs of New Mexico, that border is really quite stark and this rural. This little blue healer livestock dog is five months old. He so took me to see something surprising. Right the crossing where ranchers take cattle across the border, packing thousands of cows at once into enormous holding pens. What you see are all these livestock pens, and they sort and handle the cattle 
according to whoever the buyer is on the other side, and the same with the Mexican side. It's one of the many types of border trade, not just in big cities, but everywhere. And the ranching business has adapted to the existing barriers and will probably adapt to larger ones like the wall. Other fauna may not be so lucky. Further west, in Arizona, I spoke to Dan Millis, a Tucson native who runs the Borderlands campaign for the Sierra Club, an environmental NGO. One of the things we hear a lot is that, is that the Trump administration isn't really building any new walls. They're just, they're just replacing existing walls. Is that true fundamentally? I wish that the Trump administration was just replacing walls that already exist, but unfortunately, no, that is not true. Uh, what's happening is that vehicle barriers, which are basically a, a guardrail along a highway, but a little bit taller, those are being replaced with walls. And that means that a five-foot easy-to-cross barrier for wildlife and for water and for people uh, is being replaced by a 30-foot barrier. Lake and Jordahl works for the Center for Biological Diversity. So right now, the existing five miles of wall that was built in the Bush era um, comes to an abrupt end. And interestingly, the wall runs across this rugged, almost impassable mountain. Um, they blasted a wall through this mountain, and then it stops uh, right where the landscape becomes flat again. Um, and to me, this just illustrates how border walls have always been um, a political tool, not, not a tactical one. Customs and Border Patrol argues that the wall is necessary, that it secures unsecure rural areas, and gives them essential response time in cities. But are those marginal improvements really worth the immense amount of money it's costing American taxpayers? Because Mexico certainly is not going to pay for the wall. Really, it's about sending a national message, one that Mr. Trump and his supporters like as much as his opponents loathe. But as Dan points out, the local impact of the wall is profound and lasting. It's a blight on the landscape, especially where they've put stadium lights along the walls, which they plan to do for all of these new walls that they're building. That harms nocturnal species, um, lights up the night sky so you can't see stars as well. Even now for wall construction, the water is being sucked out of the ground near places that are, are desert oases. And so that spring water that the oases depend on is in danger of drying up. The far western borderlands are beautiful, hard and austere, but teeming with life. The wall isn't a marketing trick, as some Democrats would have the American people believe. It's very real, and it's rising, and the way it's changing these landscapes is the proof. So, John Fasman, if you look at Donald Trump's immigration policy, there are some symbolically very important policies that we're all familiar with. There's the caging of children on the southern border. There's the turning of backs on refugees, or at least taking fewer than you know any recent year in American history. And then there's the ultimate symbol, the wall. But your reporting suggests that the wall, it's, it's more than just a symbol, right? There is actually a lot of wall being built, despite what you might have read. So, as of... When I was there, there have been at least, I think, 90 miles of wall replacement. And that is, as Dan and Lakin pointed out, that sounds like it's not a big deal. But when you're replacing basically a five-foot guardrail to prevent cars from driving across the border with a 16-foot steel-reinforced bollard fence with stadium lighting atop it that animals can't cross and that, and that water often has trouble crossing – it really is a, a new project. And while all that's going on, John, uh, President Trump will hit Democrats in their primary, trying to characterize them as being in favor of open borders and sanctuary cities. There's some truth to those accusations, right? 
There is some. Earlier on in the race, I was struck at how far to the left Democrats were moving on immigration, given how unoccupied the sort of center is. I think most Americans feel that there is a sane middle ground, that you obviously need to have a border. Not anyone who wants to come in can come in. So you, if borders have rules and rules have to be enforced. But there are 11 million undocumented people here, a lot of whom have been brought here as children and no, no other home. And they really deserve a, a pathway to citizenship. Beyond that, there's a rhetorical center, too, that you can say America is a nation of immigrants. We are stronger with immigrants without saying, as all the Democratic candidates have, that the government should fund health care for undocumented immigrants, which is not a popular position. Leaving aside any more question whether we should do it, it's just it's a politically very risky step to take. I think Democrats have begun to moderate somewhat on this question. Certainly when I saw Bernie Sanders a week or so ago in New Hampshire, he went out of his way to say he did not support open borders. And I think they'll tack back toward the center. Charlotte, I know you've been to see Donald Trump talking to businessmen in New York where he says, listen, you may not like me, but the economy is going so great, you're all going to vote for me. How do the economic arguments about immigration fit into that pitch and, and fit into that relationship between Donald Trump and American business? I think that immigration is one of the key areas of a schism between Trump and business. Businesses since the earliest days of the Trump administration have objected to the Trump administration's immigration policies on both economic and also moral grounds. So after the ban of travel from Muslim-majority countries was announced, you saw various Silicon Valley CEOs leading protests with a bullhorn saying, you know, this is antithetical to our values and also hard for our companies. The members of the Business Roundtable, which is a big group of corporate CEOs, wrote to the Trump administration to protest his immigration policies, the restrictions on H-1B visas, which provide ways for skilled workers to enter the country. That has been a headache for big companies. And then you saw executives have really strong language around the separation of children from their families at the border. Jamie Dimon, the CEO of J.P. Morgan Chase, saying it's contrary to American values. Tim Cook of Apple saying that it's inhumane. And then when you get into the weeds a little bit on Trump sort of trying to make nice on immigration with the business community, earlier in 2019, he had a plan for three different categories for different workers in this Build America visa program. And it included workers with extraordinary talent, including special provisions for people in, in particularly sought-after vocation as vocations as well as exceptional students. And this question of skills-based immigration and skills-based admission is interesting because presumably this would help to solve businesses' problem. You know, Google wants to hire really talented engineers. Great, we'll have this new visa program under Trump. But if you think about it, it's not really what businesses want because it puts the government in this weird position of judging immigrants based on their perceived economic value. And that's really not a straightforward assessment. It also arguably is flawed morally. Deciding that one person is worth more than another is not a, a moral judgment perhaps that the government should be making. You touch on that moral argument, Charlotte. It's interesting to me what Donald Trump has done to opinion about immigration in America. Because you might assume, observing his policies and his rhetoric, that America's turned its back on immigrants. But if you look at the polling now, the share of Americans who think that immigration is broadly a good thing is at an all-time high. 
Yeah, I think it's fascinating. I mean, most Americans get this in large part because their family includes immigrants or they know people who are immigrants. I was interested actually in Republicans' attitudes on refugees from violent countries, which since 2016, actually more Republicans say it's important to take in refugees from from countries that are experiencing violence. So even there, I do think that there's a sort of resonance among people who generally might support Donald Trump that some of his policies on immigration just go too far. I would also say as the great-grandson of uneducated, in one case illiterate, rural immigrants who arrived here speaking no English, the decision about who is going to contribute most in the future is not a very easy or clear one, right? I think under any policy that favors skilled immigrants and disfavors unskilled ones, my great-grandparents would have would have not come here and we would not be here. John, you're, you're making the assumption that journalists are skilled labor. That's I'm pretty right, sure exactly. that's not falling into the criteria established by the Trump administration. <laughs> so what do we take from all this, John Charlotte? On the one hand, Donald Trump's approach to immigration looks politically like it's really working for him and might well work very well in, in November. On the other hand, it doesn't necessarily reflect the economics or American public opinion. I think that there's the question of immigration and how it plays politically, there's a short-term question and then there's a long-term question. And after Romney lost the election against Obama, there was lots of soul-searching within the Republican Party and people thought that Republicans shouldn't alienate immigrants and doing so was suicidal. Donald Trump certainly proved that theory wrong. I do think that and, and in this campaign, you're going to see him continuing to use immigration as a way to rally his base, get more people to the polls. And the fact that the economy has performed well in his first term will help him to make that case, even if the connection between his immigration policies and broader economic growth remains tenuous. In the long term, Republicans still do have this question, that question that came out of the Romney failure is still a very salient question for Republicans as the years go on. I cannot imagine that if you continue to be the party that has the type of rhetoric and the type of policies that the Trump administration has put forward, that you're going to have electoral success in 2030. I think Charlotte's absolutely right. And in addition to a short-term and a long-term question, there's also a sort of utility versus values question, too, that Donald Trump has a politically very compelling story to tell. He has slowed illegal immigration. He has got the border under control. Wages are growing. The Democratic counter to that could be, but is that all we are? Everything he says may be true, but we have also separated parents and children at the border. We have a president who has referred to Africa as full of shithole countries. We have signaled to members of one of the world's three Abrahamic faiths that they are not welcome here. Is this who we want to be? And I think you will start to see that sort of rhetoric emerge as the Democrats choose a contender, that they will counter Trump's economic argument with a a values-based one. And I think there are a lot of Americans who would be very receptive to that. Before you both go, it is time for the archive quiz on today's theme of immigration and labor, of course. And it's from The Economist on the 30th of October, 1852. The paper in that week reported that immigration to California was expected to double that year. From which country were the migrants coming? China. China. Spot on. You're absolutely right. There were 27,058 Chinese people in California already, The Economist reported, with another 20,000 expected to arrive imminently. 
Um, that calculation came from the news that, quote, 30 vessels loaded with Chinese were bound for San Francisco. What were they coming for? Gold. They were coming for gold. Charlotte, you get 10 out of 10 this week. So that makes up for last week's fail. <laughs> the next story in the paper that day, which I saw at the same time was researching this, is terrific. It goes on about an invention for sending letters and parcels all around London at record speed. And the idea was you'd have this large hot air balloon hovering over London and you'd have wires going from the hot air balloon to the suburbs and letters and packages and things would go up to the balloon by a rope and then they would zoom out across these wires. They'd be put in little wicker baskets hanging by wheels from the wires. And, and by that way, all these packages and letters would get out to all the corners of London at record speed. And The Economist wrote that by force of gravity, they would dart down the wires with great velocity to their respective destination. It sounds like a plague of concussions waiting to happen as people get hit by wicker <laughs> baskets with parcels in them. Also, The Economist choosing technology winners since 1843. <laughs> The reason why we're not venture capitalists. I thought it sounded like the next iteration of Amazon Prime, personally. They've patented that. Thank you to John Fasman and Charlotte Howard. Charlotte, I'll see you soon because I'll be doing the podcast with you in New York next week. Great to see you soon. And I will be on the line from South Carolina. Now, a correction. Last week, when we were talking about Bernie Sanders, I had Eugene Debs on the brain and mistakenly said that the senator who claimed that Democrats were infiltrated by communists in the 1950s was Eugene McCarthy. It was, of course, Joseph McCarthy. Thanks to the Sharp reviewer who spotted that and apologies. Next week, we'll pivot back to the Democratic race. If you missed our Bernie Sanders episode, go back in the timeline for that. It's well worth a listen. Pete Buttigieg was a guest on The Economist Asks podcast last year. Do check that out as well. There's a link in the episode blurb for this podcast. That's all from us. Thanks, Callum Williams, Charlotte Howard, John Fasman. Please give us a rating on your podcast app if you like what you've heard. We'll have more Checks and Balance next week. the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.